Really excited. We're going to begin a, a new kind of a module looking at um, the biblical theology of Babylon. This will be a little bit different than following a, a single book of the Bible through and doing things from an expository teaching standpoint. We'll be looking um, at Babylon, how God used Babylon throughout uh, the pages of Scripture to reveal his character to sanctify his people, and to help us understand better how he is sovereign in control of human history, all for his purposes. As we go through, we'll, we'll have the opportunity to really do, in a lot of ways, um, uh, an Old Testament survey. Um, today, we uh, have a handout for you, and Melissa is helping to kind of give us some handouts as we go through this study with um, different things that should help us uh, better understand the different texts that we'll look at. Uh, today, the handout just kind of is something you can tuck in your Bibles and have uh, identifies the major prophets, and you'll see how each of these major prophets has a, a link to Babylon. But what I want to make sure that we ha- have in mind is that throughout this study, uh, it's not about gaining uh, Bible trivia, understanding more about Babylon. It's about understanding the character of our God. And so the, the themes that we want to look at are our holy God, his righteous remnant that he's called out, and Babylon as an instrument of his redemption and as an instrument of his sanctification. So we'll kind of keep those three things in view. Uh, Learning about God's character throughout this study, learning about God's people, and learning about how God uses even his his opposition. So we'll um, be looking at a number of different texts today. Uh, I think you should have probably got a little bookmark there with sort of a syllabus of what we'll look at the next seven weeks, subject to change, of course, as the Holy Spirit leads. But we want to learn from each of uh, these different um, themes with the biblical theology of Babylon. Why do we study Babylon? There's a, a slide in here that has a picture that I had the opportunity to take at the Pergamon Museum in Berlin. And this museum is a fascinating museum that talks all about the history of Assyria and of Babylon. And all of the the texts, one interesting thing that we'll come to learn about Babylon is that throughout their culture, things were very well archived, very well documented. And we see a a ton of texts um, coming from those civilizations that very much complement our understanding of of Scripture. Very complementary. But in the midst of this museum, there was almost no mention of Scripture. There's almost no mention of God's word. They talked about all of these societies and completely devoid of scripture. Yet in the midst of that museum, I saw a high school class with this high school Bible teacher crouched down on the, on the floor, revealing God's word and putting the biblical worldview on top of all that is Babylon. Literally um, brought me to tears. And um, what we can see in all of this and have in view of this study is that the, the world paints one view of history, but God paints and authors human history. And so um, I'm excited to to dig into this together. Why are we looking at the study of Babylon? From Genesis to Revelation, we find uh, mentions to Babylon. The word Babylon, or some variation, is found over 400 times in Scripture. We also find some variations of um, the mention of the Babylonians in terms of the Chaldeans, the region from which Babylon was formed. That's found over 80 times, and it plays a significant role in God's story um, for revealing his, his people. We're going to begin kind of looking at the history of, of Babylon and, and taking all this in view in the book of Genesis. We could go to uh, Genesis chapter 10. 
we have the account of, of Noah and his sons that were taken onto the ark with him, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And as they um, were preserved by the Lord, they were also allowed to take wives and to uh, have children. And we see these genealogies presented to us in the book of Genesis. And these are important to keep in view because we know that God, as he lays out his plan for human history, uses a, a, a key person and establishes their line to carry on a lasting and enduring role in revealing his history. We have Abraham that becomes the father of, of the nation of Israel. We have David from whom we have the messianic line. And then today we're going to get acquainted with Nimrod through whose lineage we have the people of Babylon who come to represent an opposition to God and an opposition to God's people. So let's look and, and get uh, Nimrod in view here just a little bit, understand this, this context. Um, Genesis 10, verse 6, it says, The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Rama, and Sabteca. The sons of Rama, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod, and he was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, therefore it it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, Kalna, in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ir, Kala, and Rezin, between Nineveh and Kala, that is, the great city. In this genealogy, we have um, the several sons of Ham pulled out and highlighted. We have Cush, Egypt, put Canaan, and then we see Nimrod singled out. Now, it's really interesting. We know that throughout Scripture, God, in many ways, picks a certain line to fulfill a certain purpose, or he'll pick a certain line and apply a curse that carries on to show how his word over time comes to fruition. We know that Jacob he loved, and Esau he hated. We also know from an unusual account in the previous chapter in Genesis that Noah's three sons had an encounter with their father sleeping naked, right? And it was Ham that went in and saw his father, his father uncovered. And so Noah specifically cursed Ham and Canaan and his lineage. And so out of that son Ham, we see this lineage of people who would ultimately become opponents to God's people. We have um, uh, Cush, which would later be down in Ethiopia. We have Egypt, we have Put, and we have Canaan, these opponents to God's people from their very origin. And then we have Nimrod singled out. It says, Therefore it was said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord, and the beginning of his kingdom was establishing these cities. So as um, Noah's descendants come off the ark and they begin a sort of migratory patterns, they establish themselves in different places in different cities, and Nimrod was known for being a mighty hunter. He wasn't uh, a shepherd or a farmer or sustaining himself by any other means, but by becoming a warrior. And we'll find out as we study through these uh, seven weeks of looking at Babylon that Nimrod was given this ability to be a conqueror, to be a warrior, and, to, and he did so to fulfill some of God's purposes. Interestingly enough, he founded the cities of, Syria, of, of Nineveh, which would become the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and he also uh, established... Um, uh, Babylonia as an empire. So Nimrod is the father of both the Assyrians, who would be a vicious enemy of Israel, the northern kingdom, and also the father of Babylon. That's really 
um, important context for, for us to understand. First Chronicles 1 also gives uh, a recount, and um, Nimrod is singled out in that particular account. We can take a quick look um, at uh, First Chronicles chapter 1. The uh, chapter begins starting all the way back with Adam, goes through the genealogy, and in verse 8, verse uh, 9 rather, we have the sons of Cush, Seva, Havilah, Sabta, Rama, and Sabteka, the sons of Rama, Shiva, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. So we need to keep this in mind and, and keep the legacy, the lineage of Babylon in mind, Nimrod. Uh, interestingly enough, if you look at how uh, words become uh, and have assigned different meanings in society, um, the uh, term Nimrod has kind of come colloquially to be an insult, like a dimwit. And the reason that happened is because uh, in the um, comic with Bugs Bunny, Bugs Bunny referred to Elmer Fudd as a Nimrod. And he did that with some biblical understanding because he knew that Nimrod was a mighty hunter. So he was using it as some sarcasm to explain that Elmer Fudd wasn't exactly the mighty hunter. Um, in any case, keep that little con- uh, context in mind. The mighty hunter, right? Um, as we see Babylon unfolding, there's another thing that's really important for us to understand, and that is Babylon is one of the most ancient human civilizations. Likely uh, came into being around uh, 3000 BC, if we look at some, some extra biblical texts and, and look at those timelines. And then we see the Assyrian Empire. Um, in our uh, chart of major prophets, each of the major prophets has Babylon in view. Isaiah really opens with seeing the Assyrian Empire posing a threat and ultimately um, destroying the northern kingdom of Israel. And at the same time, as the Assyrian Empire is being eclipsed by Babylon, we see Babylon coming into view to threaten the southern kingdom of Judah. And that is uh, considered the Neo-Babylonian Empire. We essentially have two Babylonian empires. We have one that precedes Assyria. We've got Assyria. The Assyrians essentially were a sort of uh, asleep on the job and fighting all of their empire, um, all their battles off towards, um, towards the land of Canaan. And the Chaldeans reorganized themselves, had a bit of an urban renewal in the city of Babylon, and formed Neo-Babylon. So what we see throughout the major prophets with Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel is Neo-Babylon. A little over 100 years of a great and mighty and uh, powerful empire of Babylon. And that context is where much of the biblical text that we'll be looking at is, is focused. Today we're going to start way back at the beginning. Hopefully this will be context for us as we go through. Um, let's go to uh, Genesis chapter 11, a familiar account with the Tower of Babel. We have our genealogy in view. We know about Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We know about Cush, and we know about Nimrod. And in Genesis chapter 11, we have this account beginning in 11.1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found in the plant, a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Whenever we find Shinar, we're talking about Babylon. It's found uh, eight times in Scripture, and that place, that origin, which is um, essentially the, the, the area where Abraham was from, um, it refers to Babylon. So as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. 
And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And let nothing they propose to do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language, so that they might not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is a, an interesting aspect. We're going to talk a little bit about Babylonian theology. The Babylonians were polytheists and had over 2,500 different deities. And their idea in constructing this Tower of Babel is that it would be um, a gateway to heaven. The term Babel in ancient language likely meant uh, gateway to heaven. And God instead thwarted those plans and brought about the word to mean confusion. He thwarted their plans. And that's really important for us to understand as well, because as we look at what Babylon typifies and what it represents, is it represents opposition to God, rebellion to God, threatening of his people, and ultimately at its root, it's humanism. It's look what we can do. If we um, want to have that in view, let's go briefly to uh, Habakkuk chapter 1. This chapter is one that we're going to learn um, a great deal from. The picture that we see of Babylon is very clearly explained in verse 11. We'll look at the previous part of the chapter in just a moment, but Habakkuk 1.11 says, They sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose might is their God whose own might is their God. So Babylon is, is humanism. Babylon is look what we can do. And we see from the very beginning this opposition to God's design. God is having the people migrate, and the people say, nope, we're going to stay here. We're going to build a tower. We're going to show what we can accomplish. And we're going to do it through the unity of our human efforts. And God thwarted that. And that's a theme that we'll see um, throughout the study as well. Let's go and look at a little bit of the the history of the Babylonian religion. Um, we have an understanding that the Babylonians were polytheists. They had a, a whole myriad of gods. Some of those gods were from the, the old Babylonian empire, and over the course of better than a thousand years, those gods were worshipped by the Assyrians. Those gods were modified in, uh, worshipped and in modified forms in New Babylon, and of course they play a big role in what we see in terms of the interaction of Babylon and God's people. We have Nebuchadnezzar telling Daniel to bow before the idol, right? We have um, examples of, of Babylonian idolatry um, throughout Scripture. And in fact, when uh, Scripture talks about Babylon, oftentimes it's a cipher talking specifically about idolatry. So the key god of um, Babylon was Marduk, or Bel. And um, this is represented here. This is on the Ishtar Gate, which is a gate that was taken from and restored from Daniel's day. 
So very likely would have been there as uh, Nebuchadnezzar was instructing the people of Israel and all of the people of Babylon to bow before the altar, uh, before the idol. This god Marduk is one that in, in very many ways gives us an understanding of why Babylon and God and his people are so opposed. So Marduk is a, a storm god, a god of wisdom, a god of fertility. And according to the Babylonian mythology, uh, this god, Bel, uh, fought against a creator goddess, one, and as such, about 50 other principal gods bestowed a name to Marduk and promoted Marduk to the top of the Babylonian pantheon. So of all the 2,500 gods, Marduk is their, their top god. We see that as being very significant, uh, as Daniel's name was uh, changed to Belshazzar, right? It's the servant of, of Bel, the Lord, right? So um, that's important for us to understand. Scripture actually talks about, uh, in a couple of different examples, about how God is going to symbolically bring down this false god to show his power. Uh, let's go to um, Isaiah chapter 43. Sorry, uh, Isaiah 46. In the coming weeks, we'll be doing an a, a amazing survey of the book of Isaiah, which is so rich. Isaiah really, in many ways, is divided into three separate parts. We have the first part, which is um, the warning and, and the destruction of Israel um, uh, that's coming, their, their judgment. We have a little historical bridge in the middle that we'll learn from. And then ultimately, at the end, we'll see... God redeeming and bringing forth some healing and restoration. And in chapter 46, we're now into that third section, which is dealing with God's restoration of his people. And as part of that, he promises that Babylon and their false god will be brought down. 46.1 says, Bel bows down, Nebo stoops. Bel and Marduk are interchangeable, by the way. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. And so um, God talks about how he's uh, opposed to, um, to Marduk, to these gods. Let's also go to Jeremiah chapter 50. Verses 1 through 3 are prophetic words against Babylon and specifically calling out the false gods of Babylon. The word of the Lord, the word that the Lord spoke concerning Babylon, concerning the land of the Chaldeans by Jeremiah the prophet, declare among the nations and proclaim, set up a banner and proclaim and conceal it not and say, Babylon is taken. Bel is put to shame. Merodach is dismayed. Her images are put to shame, and her idols are dismayed. For out of the north a nation has come against her, which shall make her land a desolation, and none shall dwell in it. Both man and beast shall flee away. We'll examine this at greater length as well, but one really amazing thing that we'll see through the major prophets is that God foretold that Babylon would be raised up as a power. He foretold that they would be used to punish the people of Israel, specifically Judah, and then he promised that another power would come out of the Medo-Persian Empire and bring down Babylon. And so this uh, chapter 50 here is God's promise that while um, 
they, uh, they may have had mil- military victories over the people of Israel. They may have submitted God's people that that victory was not enduring, that God would vindicate his people and bring down those enemies. Merodach is the Hebrew word for, um, for Marduk. And interestingly enough, if we look at the account of Esther, we have uh, the Mordecai. And Mordecai is actually a variation of the word Marduk as well. He had been given the name of that Babylonian god. So that's a little bit about the, the context, and we, we have to understand that they're polytheists, and that Babylon, from its origin, was in opposition to, to God. Let's go back to Genesis together. As we kind of begin the story today, we have, at the tail end of chapter 11, we have the introduction of another line. We've got Nimrod that brings us the line of the Babylonians, And then we have, out of one of Noah's other sons, Shem, the promise of God's people, God's people, Abraham. Verse 27, chapter 11. Now, these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarah, Sarai. And the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. This is really really an interesting uh, metaphor that God is, is giving us in what he's doing with, with Abram. We see that Abram came from Ur of the Chaldeans. Ur was a principal city in Chaldea, which is part of Babylon. So we fast forward a while, and, uh, and we, we, we see that the people of, of Israel are being brought into Babylon for, to be punished in captivity. But really, it's not their first time in Babylon. God called Israel out of Babylon. Abram, the father of, of Israel, the father of, of his chosen people, started out in the midst of these pagan people in Ur of Chaldea. It's them being brought out and called out. And we see an amazing parallel with that if we look in, in 1 Peter. If we go to 1 Peter chapter 2, 9 and 10, a text that we, we all know really well, we see this character of our God. He calls out of an unbelieving people to establish for himself a believing people. And if that's not a theme of the gospel, I don't know. That's amazing. First um, Peter chapter two, nine and ten. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you might proclaim the excellence of excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people. But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We see this idea of God calling Abraham, Abram out of Ur of the Chaldeans, sending them to a land that he would promise to them, establishing his line, and ultimately um, setting apart these, this distinction between the people of Babylon and the people of Israel. And actually th- distinguishing his chosen people from all other peoples for his glory. Let's go to um, Deuteronomy chapter 28. 
we begin to understand as we look at Babylon that God has predestined, preplanned all of these things to happen for his purposes. And as we look at Deuteronomy, it's full of the conditional aspects of his covenant with his people. Your obedience brings you this blessing. Your disobedience brings this curse. That's a pattern throughout uh, what we see in the Old Testament with his covenants with his people. And um, I'm going to start reading in chapter, um, chapter 28, verse 45. He's established these um, blessings um, for obedience in the first part of chapter 28. And now he's talking about the curses for disobedience. And look how amazingly specific God's word is. It says, All these curses shall come on you and pursue you and overtake you until you are destroyed. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and statutes that he has commanded you. They shall be a sign and a wonder against you and your offspring forever. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart, because of the abundance of all things. Therefore, you shall serve your enemies, whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst and nakedness and lacking everything. And he will, be put, and he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far and away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like an eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand a hard-faced nation who will not respect the old or show mercy to the young. It shall eat the offspring of your cattle and the fruit of your ground until you are destroyed. It shall leave you no grain, wine, or oil, the increase of your herds or the young of your flocks until they have caused you to perish. They shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout all your land. And they shall besiege you in all your towns throughout all your land, which the Lord your God has given you. And you see that this is being laid out with a clear portrait of Babylon being used as God's instrument to punish them for their disobedience. So as we see this distinction, God's pulling, um, pulling out Nimrod's line to establish Babylon. He's pulling out Abraham's line to establish Israel. And he's establishing this plan with these conditions that as human history unfolds, it'll be irrefutable that God's word came to fruition. One other really key thing to understand here is that um, as Abram's pulled out of Babylon, out of that polytheism, he wishes to reveal himself to his people as the one and the only God. Abram was unique in being a, a monotheist in those days, and God was interested in creating for himself a renown, that he is the only God, the God of Israel, the God that appoints kingdoms, allows them to be raised up, and that he brings those same kingdoms down to allow his purposes to be revealed and his character to be highlighted. As we look at God being um, singular, there are some texts that really should be uh, key for us. We know that um, Moses said to his people uh, and, and explained that God is singular. And in Mark chapter 12, 29, Jesus recaps that for us and, and makes it clear as he's highlighting what's the most important of the commandments. What is the most important thing that God wants Israel to understand about who he is? And that is his singularity as being God. Mark chapter 12, and one of the, verse 28, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. 
and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. That is God's message to his people from the get-go. I'm the only one. There is no rock but me. I am the only one. And that we'll see throughout this, um, throughout the major prophets, we'll see that God is a jealous God. God is not interested in sharing his um, worship with any other God. And he's interested in making that perfectly clear, going to great lengths to establish that truth. Let's go to uh, Jeremiah chapter 5 together. Once we get this context together today, um, brothers and sisters, it's going to be much easier to, to follow and build on this with other lessons. This is, a, as we get into context, it's a challenging sometimes to look at it as, a, as an outline. But all of this information will be useful to us as we continue to dig through um, text and, and look at God and his plan for Israel and for Babylon. Jeremiah chapter 5, uh, verse 14 We see the prophet Jeremiah giving God's word. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, because you have spoken this word, behold, I am making my words a fire in your, uh, making my words in your mouth a fire. And this people would, and the fire shall consume them. Behold, I am bringing against you a nation from afar, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. It is an enduring nation. It is an ancient nation, a nation whose language you do not know. Nor can you understand what they say. Their quiver is like an open tomb. They are, mighty, they are all mighty warriors. They shall eat up your harvest and your food. They shall eat up your sons and daughters. They shall eat up your flocks and your herds. They shall eat up your vines and fig trees, your fortified cities in which you trust. They shall be beat down with the sword. But even in those days, declares the Lord, I will not make a full end of you. And when your people say, why has the Lord your God done all these things to us? You shall say to them, as you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your land, so shall you serve foreigners in a land that is not your own. When you bump that text up with Deuteronomy 28, it's amazing because we see over the course of history that God's words have come perfectly to fruition. God is faithful to um, execute the promises that he's made. And that includes those conditional covenants. Israel, you don't do this, this is the consequence. He established for Abram the fact that he was, there, he was to be the only God of Israel. He was to be the God that was worshipped, and, and no foreign God should be served. Throughout um, Genesis and Exodus and, and the studies that we've done, we've seen God's desire for his people to be singular in their worship of him. That Deuteronomy 28 says, look, you don't do this, here comes this enduring ancient nation. And we see from that description that that enduring ancient nation is Babylon, which endured for the course of better than a thousand years. And this empire, as we see in Jeremiah chapter 5, is coming to power to carry out this judgment against God's people. But the really key part of this is 18 and 19, where he says, I'm going to use them to punish you. I'm going to use them to sanctify you. But that's not the end of the story. He says, but even in those days, declares the Lord, I will not make a full end of you. And when your people say, why has the Lord God, our God, done all these things to us? 
That's how we respond, right? We are always like, why did God do this to us? <laughs> no, you did it to yourselves. You shall say to them, as you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your land, so shall you serve foreigners in a land that is not yours. Those are powerful words that bring absolute clarity to why God allowed Babylon to be what it was. God allowed Babylon to be raised up to carry out this judgment, but that wouldn't be the end of his remnant people. This, this theme of, of Israel being uh, restored from uh, near decimation, being brought back to be restored, is one that will, should cause our hearts to rejoice and should cause us to understand um, a lot about God's character and his desire to interact with his chosen people. As we uh, look at the text um, in Jeremiah chapter 5, we see that uh, there's this promise that that's not the end of the story. We're going to go to Isaiah chapter 43. Again, this being the portion of Isaiah where God begins to offer some glimpses of hope. The story's bad. The punishment is, is severe. Um, Isaiah is unique in that it presents us a view of, of all three empires. We see Assyria as a threat to the northern kingdom. We see Babylon as, a, as a, the instrument of judgment for the southern kingdom. And then ultimately we see um, Persia as the vindicating force, vindicating Israel and, and taking Babylon out. So we see all of that in the book of Isaiah. In um, the latter portion of Isaiah, we see a lot of prophecies against Babylon, how their aggression against Israel would be, would be dealt with. And in the midst of that, we see um, an amazing promise that should be our, our focal point for today as we begin understanding um, our God and his remnant people and the instruments that he has um, set forth to use. Isaiah 43, verse 10, says, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. Keep in mind Marduk, keep in mind Bel, keep in mind the invented gods of the Babylonians as he says this. Before me, no God was formed, nor th- shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. And you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also, henceforth, I am he. There is none that can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake I send to Babylon and bring them, down all, and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans, in the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. That text is an amazing summary of God and his desire for us to understand as we, we look at his word. There is no other God besides him. There will never be another power to rival that of the Holy One of Israel. He created Israel. It says, um, I am the Lord, your Holy One, the creator of Israel, your king. He pulled Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans. He pulled Abraham out of Babylon, out of what is that opposition to God. Then he allowed them, as the people of Israel, to be under the hand of the Babylonians. And now he's saying, I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses. 
He pulls them back out of that captivity. He brings Babylon down. Verse 14 is a promise. He says, For your sake I send to Babylon. I bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans and the ships in which they rejoice, their mighty strength, their military power, all of those things will be brought low so that it will be clearly revealed that God is the Lord, the Holy One, the Creator of Israel, and the King. And praise God, that's what we're going to begin to see as we piece this together. So my prayer is that as we, we begin um, looking at this biblical theology of Babylon, we have a right understanding of how God or- orchestrated and ordained all these things in advance for us to understand from Genesis through Revelation, where um, the, the people of, of Babylon represent what is opposition to God. They, they represent this false pride in, in human uh, power. And then all of that, is only allowed to reveal God's purpose. And all of that in due time will be submitted to the hand of of Almighty God and has been, praise God, through the power of Jesus Christ. Let me um, end by by saying that um, as as we look at um, the various texts, I think this this one in Isaiah 43 is one that we should be meditating on this week. Um, if you highlight or, or make a note there, Isaiah 43, 10 through 15 are, are key texts for us to keep in view as we, as we delve into this.